This episode of The Fearless Storyteller is brought to you by... Well, this could be sponsored by you. Visit patreon.com forward slash Ethan Freckleton to find the membership option that works for you. Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. What's my story? In 2007, I was divorced, in debt, stuck in a soul-sucking job, desperate to have a meaningful, fulfilling life, but not sure where to begin. I made a simple choice at the time, to start honoring my yes and to start speaking my no. Consequences be damned. After all, how could my life possibly get any worse? I began the long path of becoming a professional songwriter finding my fearless voice along the way. Now, I'm living my dream life as a husband, father, and professional storyteller. Michael Brent Collings is a screenwriter and international best-selling author in several genres, most notably horror. Two of his novels were finalists for the Bram Stoker Award. Michael Brent's been vocal about his struggles with depression over the years, as well as the more recent obstacles he's had to overcome as a mid-career author in a changing marketplace. But in 2020, his business is thriving, and he credits much of his success to being playfully engaged as a lifelong learner. Michael Brent Collings, welcome to The Fearless Storyteller. Thank you. So for people who may not know who you are, even though you may be a podcast circuit veteran, um, (laughs) what would you like to share about yourself? Well, first of all, that I'm never offended when people don't know who I am. It's funny because people go, I'm, you know, they say, what do you do? And I say, I'm an author. And, and, you know, they go, oh, I've, I've never heard of you. And I go, that's okay. I mean, if you can get one person in a thousand to buy one of your books, that's a huge, huge hit. So I'm fine with that. I'll, you know, I don't know their second grade teacher. And that was somebody probably fundamentally important. So it's, it's all good. Um, that being said, uh, I'm an internationally best-selling author and a screenwriter. I am best known for horror, and I'm a multiple Bram Stoker Award finalist, which is kind of like, that's the Academy Awards for horror writing, more or less. And um, so that's my kind of main gig, but I've written bestsellers in just about every genre of fiction from horror thriller, sci-fi, fantasy, all the way to young adult, and I even have a pen name that's written best-selling Western romance. <laughs> so, uh, should I call you Midas? Or? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would more tend towards, um, like, Yanis, like the somebody who's got multiple personality dis- issues, you know, because cause that's most of what it is. I just can't settle on one thing. Yeah, m- multiple genre disorder. I think, <laughs> I think many of us have that. <laughs> MGD, I love it. Yeah, but, you know, it's one thing to write multiple genres, and it's another to be 
you know, achieve sales. So yeah. you must be doing something right. Well, I hope so. Certainly I'm, you know, or my fans are depending on how you look at it. Cause they're the <laughs> ones that really, well, and I don't mean that like, Oh, they've gotten it right. And they're following me around. But you know, one of the things I tell people when I'm talking to new writers is there's not a writer alive in the whole world who can make a living selling his or her books. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. um, the writers that make it are the ones who have other people selling their books. Mm. So when I talk about, oh, my fans are getting it right. I mean, I have a wonderful fan base that is willing to brag about me online or, you know, talk me up to their friends and things like that. And that's, that's really one, been one of the biggest keys to being able to not just write for a living, but to write in all these genres as I have kind of core audience members who are a, willing to follow me around as I meander yeah. and B, willing to say, oh, yeah, I know he wrote horror and I told you about that. But hey, listen, grandma or, you know, Uncle Steve, uh, he wrote a young adult fantasy and that was pretty awesome, too. So you should check it out. Yeah. And what do you think? Like, do you know why what motivates readers to share your work with others? Um, you know, obviously when, when we talk, it's funny cause when you talk about marketing stuff, there's, there's, um, there's a base level that very often goes unstated. And that is you do have to be good at your job. I mean, it comes down to like, no matter how much you have all your other ducks in a row, if people just hate spending time with your words, they're not gonna follow them. And they're certainly not going to recommend them to people they like, you know, and, um, and so there's a base level of kind of craftsmanship and, and I'm not, again, that's not like a, I am an excellent storyteller, but you know, I know how to make a story work more or less these days. Yeah. Um, so that's the first thing. And then the other thing is, especially if you're an indie, like I am, um, I respond to every single email. I have a, you know, a Facebook page with 5,000 fans. I have another couple thousand on my personal page, most of whom are fans. I don't know that many people. Um, and then, you know, five or 6,000 on Twitter. And, and if you post on my wall or make a comment, I will respond to it. I mm. mean, I've missed a couple because, you know, I get hundreds of notifications per day and I try and hit them all, but you know, some fall through the cracks, but even then I've, I've noticed it and come back and four weeks old comment. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I missed this. Here's the answer. So I think part of it is just making them feel like, um, number one, you are a part of their life. Yeah. Um, and number two, that you appreciate them being part of yours, which I do. I mean, I will respond. I spend two or three hours a day at this point responding to emails or Facebook messages or the like, and I invariably smile. And it's not just, oh, they're saying nice things about me. I go, oh, hey, oh, it's Janet again. What's she up to? Yeah. Oh, you know, uh, Shelly. Oh, I wonder what Australia looks like this time of, you know, day or whatever. And she's updating me or he's telling me something that happened. And, and you grow to be friends with these people and, and, and they sense that. And those are your, again, your core people that are going to go out and say, not only this book's really good, but the fact of the matter is there's lots of really good books. And for them to say, and he's a nice person and mm -hmm. she's really funny and this and that, that's kind of the thing that will push a person over if they're deciding between two stories. Right. And so you kind of become emotionally relevant to people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also I think part of it is just being, um, 
service aware. That is, a lot of authors, especially, and, and this is this is understandable. We're trying to make a business. You know, if you're a new author, you dream of doing this full time. If you're a full time author, you hope you can keep doing it next year. You know, because mm. it's not exactly a stable environment. Mm. And one of the things that I found is I can't. I 100% cannot control if I am the best storyteller in the world. I cannot control, you know, if um, Ethan's, I'm going on his podcast today and it happens to be listened to by Kim Kardashian who tells all, you know, Ubity million of her friends that it's awesome. You know, we can't control that stuff. But what I can control is continuing to try. And the second thing is being kind and really trying to help other people. So you can't be the best in your industry of your own accord. It depends on too many factors, but you can focus on being like the kindest person in your, in your industry. Mm. So if I send an email to my fans, you know, on my, like my mailing list is around 20,000 people. And if I send something to them, it is not just buy my book, buy my book. It is usually, Hey, here's something that I found for you. And yeah. You know, I send out lists of free books that I found and bargains that I bump into and recommend books that I personally read that I really loved, you know, and so they know if they're getting an email, it's going to be for them. And then when I do roll around into commercial time, you know, when a new book is coming out or whatever like that, mm -hmm. um, number one, they're willing to listen because I've been doing nice things for them. And so they're more inclined to do something nice for me. And even during the launch, I'm still trying to make it worthwhile, not just in the end product that like, if you give me a couple of bucks or whatever it is, I'll give you some entertainment, but also, Hey, let's have some fun with this. And I, you know, I'll put up typically a funny video of my family. Um, the last one was the books being unboxed and I did it like a soft core porn with like mm -hmm. this total, you know, Barry White music in the bath background and the two books were getting it on and getting ready to make all the <laughs> copies come on it, you know, on launch day. And yeah, yeah. Um, the time before that I sang a bedtime song to my little, my youngest kids and it was all about blood and guts and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so they started <laughs> shrieking and it was just silly. Mm -hmm. um, but doing that stuff or doing a contest, Hey, you can win a signed, copy of one of my books um it makes it fun for them and so it's not again it's never just or i try to never have it be just hey fyi me 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 yeah it's much more hey fyi here's something i want to do for you oh and by the way if you have a minute you might consider picking up this book uh and and that makes that makes you something they look forward to rather than being spammed that they're like oh crap you know which we all have yeah and it, and it's, see, it's such a, a time suck that it's even too much time to go unsubscribe. We just automatically delete and we have spam that we asked for eight years ago. Yeah. Um, and instead of that, they're like, oh, something's going to be in here for me. And they actually click it. You know, I, I try and be much more like Groupon than like the Viagra offers. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Brent Collings the Groupon of indie authors. That's right. That's right. I, I actually did go with Michael Brent. He's not Viagra, but for some reason it didn't <laughs> test well. So wait, so if you're reading more than four hours, one of your books, should I call a doctor? Definitely call a doctor. There's something wrong with you and it, it but it has nothing to do with size. It's all to do with your mental state. <laughs> mm. 
Well, you don't want to car- have cardiac arrest while reading one of yeah. your books. I had, a, I had a fan actually come up and tell me, he said, I read this book and I really liked it. I don't know if I'll read it again. And, you know, and he was waiting, obviously. I said, why not? And he said, because I looked down on chapter eight and realized that without stopping reading, I had gone into my garage, gotten my gun out of the gun safe and was sitting with it on my lap while I read because it just terrified me so much. <laughs> Uh-huh. Maybe that would explain the people sitting on their porch with the shotguns. Oh yeah, they're, they're just they're reading. <laughs> yeah, they're just all they're just all reading the newest Michael Bryant Collings. That's what it is. <laughs> I see a whole like Instagram or Twitter campaign with people sitting on their porches cleaning their guns. Reading. Oh my gosh! No, I don't. I don't think I. I'm not sure if I want that market. Like, join Michael Brent's group. You can be, you know, a crazy gun sitting loon as well. And I'm not saying they're all loons, but definitely that's like you don't picture a well-adjusted person just sitting out on their porch every night oiling their shotgun. You know, at, at some point it becomes like, didn't he do that last night? No, but the shotgun is well adjusted. Yeah. Oh, well, the shotgun always does what it's told. Yeah. So, well, (laughs) so like my first reaction to everything he said was, how did you know Kim Kardashian is a listener? That's amazing. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But more so, it sounds like a lot of energy is being expended on an ongoing basis to keep this train rolling. Oh yeah. I tell people it's like, um, it's like creating a snowball, you know, you see in cartoons or maybe you've done it, you know, you roll the snowball and, and it starts out really small, but the more you roll, the more snow accumulates and it gets bigger and bigger. Mm. And that's really cool. Except for number one, that means the snowball gets harder and harder to push. Mm. And number two, because we're writers and we do everything bass backwards, the marketing snowball is one we're constantly having to push up the hill. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it is great. Um, it's a good problem, you know, to say, I got, I'm behind a hundred fan emails, you know, and I, I today I'm just going to take the whole day and answer fan mail. Cause I haven't in a couple of days. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a good problem to have, but definitely it does take energy. And, and even when I'm not answering emails or whatever, it, it affects other things. Like I have to be honest, I go to comic cons or, you know, writing, uh, writing conferences and things like that. And someone comes up and I really am always a little terrified. Like, what if this is somebody I really like online, but mm-hmm. I only know you as a tiny circle avatar that has a dog with a happy birthday hat, you know? Yeah. And, and I'm not going to know, hey, I'm Julia. And I'm going to be like, what? I'm Julia Smith. Who? I wrote the funny thing about the toilet last Wednesday. Oh, Julia, you're my favorite online person. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely, yeah, it does take up energy. It does take up brain space. And there are for sure days where I finish doing the marketing stuff. Um, and I, and I have to count the fans as part of that. I do like them as people and I, and I don't want to like mitigate that, but that's part of my business. And by the end of it, I'm like, I don't even feel like writing cause that was tiring, not yeah. tiresome, but it does take energy and I'm a naturally introverted person. And so doing that, you know, putting myself out there, even via email is exhausting some days. Yeah, I get that. I'm, I'm an introvert and yeah, the marketing snowball never goes away. <laughs> oh, no, 
no and if it does like that's the worst because you know it doesn't just kind of roll backwards it explodes and you have to start over so you it's something you really do have to stay on top of well which would you rather have explode the marketing snowball or the writing snowball oh well at this point neither is acceptable and it's just because when it is your job um it you can't let it go and what i mean by that is there's so many people when i talk to groups i go who wants to be a full-time author and and people raise their hands and i say which of you has a job like a real job that pays the bills and allows you enough time to write as a hobby and anyone Mm -hmm. who raises their hand i'm like you're already living the dream yeah you you literally it can't get better than that in many ways because as soon as you become a full-time writer if my marketing explodes my family goes hungry Mm -hmm. if i can't write my family goes hungry if it's your hobby you do it on the days you want to you share it with the people who will probably like it and when you don't feel like it you don't you know and as soon as you become a professional um people are always kind of shocked to learn i used to be a, a partner in a los angeles law firm and everything you've heard about the kind of hours they work is true. Mm. And I work much harder as a writer and expend way more energy as a writer and 99%. And I don't want to come off as like those baseball players who get paid a hundred million dollars and then cry because it's not fun anymore. Yeah. Um, I recognize I'm very blessed and I do love my job, but 90% of the things that were fun have now become jobs. You know, I write, every day whether i feel like it or not and i reach out and contact people about my writing whether i feel like it or not And if i have a podcast scheduled and i have a horrible cold and just feel miserable and want my mommy i still do the podcast and that's just it becomes much more work where before it was pleasure so Again, I love it. It's a great job, but I can't, you know, you say, which would you rather have explode? And I can't afford either of those things to explode ever because my family relies on me. And that's always my first priority is putting food on their table. Mm. Right. And so to do that, right, you, you either risk running your battery on empty all the time, or you must have something built into your habits and routines mm. that makes this sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's a little bit of both. I mean, um, my wife can always tell when I'm really gung ho on a story because I start getting incoherent. And I mean that literally like she'll ask questions and I'll respond to something she said yesterday, or I'll just mumble and won't even uh-huh. see the question happening. And that's because like, I, I am, full of these ideas that I really want to play with. And I'm so full that other interact, it's taking up so much of my brain space that I've got 2% left. And that's mostly devoted to not, you know, peeing myself. Like I can get to the bathroom under my own steam. (laughs) Um, And so I love it from that point of view. And I really, really want to do it. Um, But it's also part of my method and part of how I've worked out how to work over the years. Um, particularly because I do have some physical and mental health uh, issues that I, you know, I have to work around. I used to be able to 
sit down and write for 12 hours. And I can't do that the same most days because physically I can't, because mentally I can't. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to adjust my method to accommodate and, and find things that still work. So you do have to have energy. You do have to be willing to expend it. It's like anything else worthwhile. Um, and there are days where you're exhausted and wish it would all go away. And then you do it anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but a lot of it too is just, oh, here I figured out after, you know, a decade of doing this or so, here is what I can do that works for me. Hmm. Is there anything like specific that you found that's been particularly helpful? Yeah. I mean, one of the big things that I think is applicable to anybody and, and not just in art, but in most fields, um, you know, the, one of the biggest things that plagues people is writer's block. And I tell people that's just, it's a misnomer at best. It's, it's something of an unreality that we have told ourselves so often it becomes true because people equate uh, writing, the process of writing with typing or with mm. scrawling out words longhand on a legal pad or whatever your, your method of writing stuff down is. And the reality is it's much more than that. And so mm. I write every day. Now, do I type every day? No, I don't. Um, and some days my writing process is I will sit down with a good book or with a book that I want to analyze and I'll read it. Mm. Or I'll go see a movie. My wife is wonderful and she'll say, go see a movie or even go watch a video game or play a video game because I was talking about what a good story this video game has. And so I'll go and do that. And it's not me avoiding writing. It's me looking at it critically and saying, I really like how in the most recent X-Men movie, Wolverine, you know, talked to his parents or I really hated everything about the last two matrix movies. Why? Mm-hmm. And, and you're able to use that to then inform your writing. So the lesson I learned about Wolverine and talking to his parents is he never told them anything and they knew exactly how he felt when he walked out the door. So how can I inform my other interactions in my books with such a great technique? Um, and being able to do that really takes some of the stress off of mm-hmm. having to write meaning type every single day. And at the same time, when I do start typing, I usually have a much more concrete grasp on what I'm doing and a clearer sense of how to get from A to Z without wandering off into like irrational numbers that don't even belong in the <laughs> in the alphabet in the first place. Right, right. And well, first of all, that sounds like a really self-compassionate approach and it sounds like it was a journey to get there. Oh, yeah. And so I, I can't put words in your mouth, but I know a lot of us beat ourselves up if we miss a day of writing, right? Absolutely. Or we yeah, don't and, hit a word count or yeah, yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. And that's, and that's so tough. And, and I, it, one of the weird things about writing is all writers, almost without exception, uh, are this bizarre mix of total narcissism and cripplingly low Mm self-esteem and so we have this desire to tell stories that will change the world and so we put ourselves through hell to do it and then at the end we hate ourselves and go this is terrible and someone says hey i want to publish your your story or your book and you go what do i have to give you because i can't believe someone would give me anything for it yeah um and so because of that we love to write and then we seek out any reason to destroy what we've done including well you didn't right enough which it's just a fool's game to get involved in that and and much more it is 
better to think, have I improved the story that I'm working on in some way today? Mm -hmm. And to do that consistently. Um, when I was a lawyer, I would write briefs or, you know, I'd, I'd write a motion to the court and a lot of my time was spent researching and a lot of my time was spent typing and a good chunk of my time was set, spent staring at my computer thinking of ways to uh, argue this in an interesting manner or right. to write the introduction in a way that was particularly gripping and boy howdy you better believe that I build my clients for that time mm -hmm. and we don't have a problem for that you know uh, doctors spend time researching diseases and that's part of the, their salary no one expects them to go from patient to patient to patient and always have one of those little reflex hammers in their hand, you know? Um, but so many writers think unless they're doing exactly that, unless they're typing constantly and never ever stop and do it every single day, they're like, well, I failed today. And that's just not the case. Yeah. And as soon as you open yourself up to the fact that writing is a heck of a lot more of a process than just pounding words out, you're going to not only, um, do better quality, qualitatively. I mean, you're going to have much more information and energy to draw on. Um, but you're also going to find that you get more done. I mean, mm -hmm. even with going to the movie or playing the game or reading the book, I still have to slow down um, to keep from writing. I used to write six to eight books a year. And now I intentionally write three or four because mm -hmm. my fans just, they get burnt out, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, you can outwrite your fans. Perhaps. Oh, you totally can. And, yeah. and that's, what's going to happen. And you're not going to write as well. So just slow it down, give yourself time to not relax. I'm not going to the movie and being brainless, but you can do different things that aren't typing and they're valid parts of the process. Yeah. Well, it's a very compassionate lens. And I imagine like for myself and perhaps others, like it, in the social media era, when we've got this kind of built in author community, mm -hmm. um, it's easy to hear about the people who are pumping out words every day and, yeah. And, and, you know, seeing doing the calculations, say for myself, well, if I wrote 12 books this year, I'd have a whole bunch of new things to market. <laughs> and this new value chain and you know i can link that to my livelihood and yeah right and maybe that pays for my insurance next year right yeah and yeah. then if i'm not putting words on the page right yeah and and that's a valid thing to be concerned about but if you are feeling that way i would consider two things number one you know so i'm just using fake names i don't want anyone to think uh, i'm picking on anyone so if you know a uh kevin jones i'm not talking about your kevin mm -hmm. um but you see that kevin jones wrote twelve thousand words on wednesday and you're like everybody's writing so fast kevin just blows me away mm -hmm. go back and first of all read through kevin's Twitter feed or Facebook wall or Insta posts and see how often he actually says that it's not going to be every day. Mm -hmm. um, and if it was, Kevin probably wouldn't feel a need to post it because it's, it's rote. It's just the thing that happens every day. Yeah. Um, I almost never post. I woke up, you know, everybody kind of assumes <laughs> that. So Kevin, if he's really hitting that every day, you wouldn't know it probably because he wouldn't post it. So what you're feeling is number one, kind of a, a contraction, a time dilation where you're perceiving Kevin, his last post six months ago that stuck in your head, like it happened day before yesterday. 
And the other thing is because we do have an author network, what you're really remembering is kind of a, uh, an aggregate of Kevin and Tommy and Jane and Pat and all the people who've posted once in the last year that they had a really good writing day. And so if you, you know, if you feel down about that, actually look at it because facts are sometimes a helpful mitigator to the lies that we tell ourselves. Um, I do have these mental health problems and one of them is a really severe major depressive disorder. And so on my bathroom mirror, I have written out dates where I got to the end of the day and I said, today was a really good day. Mm. And so when I'm in the midst of depression and it feels one of the things that does is distort your reality. And so I'm like, everything's always been bad. Today is bad. Every day in the future will be bad. And my wife can walk me in and say, remember May 1st, that was a good day. You wrote it down in your own writing, you know, and it doesn't help me feel better necessarily, but it gets me through that stretch. And I think if you look at your favorite writer's output that you think is just beyond belief, it's actually not look at really look at their posts. Oh, they only said that once this year. Right. And the other thing to remember is like, I'm a full-time writer. If I sit down and write full-time six, eight, 10 book or six, eight, 10 hours a day. Um, and usually it's more of the eight to 10 to 12. Uh, if I do that, I'm going to put out a lot more words than someone who is working a 50 hour a week insurance job and writing an hour, maybe two a day. And, and so that's a ridiculous comparison. Mm. You cannot make that comparison. You can say, well, you know, Michael Brent, and this is true when I was a lawyer, I woke up around five or six and I'd go be a lawyer and then I'd come home and play with my family and my wife would go to bed at 10 ish. She's always been an early bedtime person. And then I would write from 10 or 11 until one or two. And I did that for a decade. And so I was tired a lot of the time. And if someone else is looking and saying, how do I make my career to the next step? That might be a, and I'm not saying they have to compare it, but that might be a valid thing to look at and say, oh, well, Michael Brent says, after everyone went to bed, he wrote. And I can't do that because I have low blood sugar and I fall apart mm -hmm. that late at night. But maybe if I got up an hour early, I could do it on the other end. And so now you're you're comparing your something, yourself to something germane versus, well, James Patterson says every time he flies to Tokyo, he gets extra work done. So why am I not flying? You know, that's just yeah. stupid. <laughs> yeah. And I, you I, wouldn't do that in any other business. Yeah. It's bringing to mind because I'm, uh, yeah, I'm full-time and my wife and I, we have this compassionate lens on full-time. Full-time is working 25 hours a week. Yeah, right. right. And so having a process that supports getting what we need to get done, done and having time for everybody. And, you know, we've yeah. got family and you add in family needs and it becomes, you know, having specific things that you need to get done and hitting a schedule, at least for me, becomes more stressful if I can't be graceful. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Right. And, and recognizing that life is in flux. And um, I was really upset right before the coronavirus stuff happened. I, I spent the last year kind of getting in, really working on getting in better shape. Mm. Um, and I was within five pounds of, of equaling my personal weightlifting record for this one exercise. And I uh, separated my ACL and my shoulder. Ugh, yeah. 
I know, super fun. And it was like, I wasn't, I didn't even care about the pain. It was that five fricking pounds that was, you know, <laughs> just grinding at me. Yeah. And, and I think we do that a lot, you know, and we, we base our current performance against the sparkly halo days of yesterday. And, yeah. and again, that's a false comparison because yesterday I didn't have a separated ACL and I can spend all my time and energy bitching and moaning about that and get nothing done. Or I can engage in physical therapy, which is, you know, I'm not doing my max lifts while I'm doing physical therapy, but hopefully I'm getting back to that point. Mm. And, and so, yeah, we, part of what we need to do as writers is prioritize too. Um, no one, if you're a, this kills me, if you're a doctor and you're unhappy in your job, you're not meeting your professional expectations, you know, your family never sees you and you go to your friends and say, I've decided to chuck it all and be a janitor. And everybody's going to say, are you sure? And you go, yes. And they go, then you've found your bliss and you're, you're being powerful and making a good decision and you've, you're living your truth and there's nothing mm. but applause. Mm. And if you're trying to make it as a writer and you say to yourself, boy, this is really not as fun as I thought it would be. And my family doesn't have what I want them to have. And nothing makes sense that's making you happier, improving your quality of life. For some reason, we think it's a failure to go, well, I think I'm going to shift gears and focus more on my accounting job or, yeah. you know, on being a janitor or whatever it is. Um, because if you're focusing so much on, on, the wrong thing, you're going to be miserable. And so you do have to sit there and go, what makes me happy? Is it, is it the act of writing? Well, yeah. I can do that. Is it the idea of making money? Then boy, do something else. Cause almost everything else makes more money. Hmm. And, and once you can kind of clarify that it's very helpful. Um, for me, again, the priority is putting food on my family's table. And so a couple years ago, I went through a really, really, really bad spell. And part of that was my own personal, physical and mental health limitations at the time. And part of it was changes in the market. Mm -hmm. But I ended up driving pizza part time. And I'm telling you about it freely and anyone who wants to listen. And I'm very proud I did that. And I didn't mm -hmm. feel particularly like a failure. I mean, it was a bummer. I would rather have been writing stories than delivering pizza. I'm not mm -hmm. going to lie. But I was proud that I was seeing to the things that mattered most. And so part of what you need to do, what anyone needs to do, I think, as a writer, and what I needed to do is determine what matters most and how can I feed that thing. Yeah. And I just happen to make more money to feed my family as a writer than I do for anything else. And so that feeds my most important need to take care of them. Right. If I go through another dry spell, I will drive pizza again and I will be very proud of myself there. So look at your life. And if you feel like you're failing as a writer, you probably aren't, but you might be trying for something that makes you miserable in reality. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I, I learned the first time I tried to go into business for myself was like, I, I thought, you know, six, eight months, that's, that's what I need to get this thing going. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. You laugh, right. Because you're bullshit. You can't do anything right. in six to eight no months. Yep. And, and I realized as I got more data and I got like a year into it that I was on a five-year path mm -hmm. and I had only budgeted for a year and a half. Yeah. 
right? And so was I going to be a failure for going back to work after a year and a half, you know, or, you know, is it, do I get better and, and learn and accept and plan for a five-year path for yeah. align the resources, right? Yeah. And I, I think that's so wise. I mean, I think the, the number one reason uh, I read somewhere that new businesses go bankrupt is a failure. They undercapitalize and they do exactly yeah. that. They're like, yeah. in a year, we'll be turning a profit and it just doesn't happen. And so as a writer, I know I wrote 15 screenplays before I sold one. Mm. And I wrote millions of words before any of them were worth asking people money for, you know? Uh, and, and so to sit to yourself and say, well, I wrote a book and it didn't go anywhere. Ergo, I am miserable and unhappy because I am bad at this. That's just not true. You're, you're in a place where you're supposed to be not as qualified. It's not that you're bad at it. You're bad compared to someone who's been doing it for 20 years full time. Yeah. But it, you're exactly where you should be in your writing process. You're kind of sucky because you wrote one book and I hate to tell this to people, but it's true. Your first book sucks. Yeah. You know, people do not write a masterpiece out of the gates. And when they do, it's kind of a tragedy because <laughs> they don't know how to replicate it. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to yeah. be a one hit wonder you want to be someone who has a long-term career. If that's really your goal, then you want it to start happening at a point where you go, oh, I understand enough that I can probably do it again tomorrow. Yeah. And that willingness to learn is crucial, especially nowadays because things are changing so fast. So like I said, a couple of years ago, I wasn't keeping up with the market in certain areas that had nothing to do with, you know, just the writing, the stories. Yeah. And it tanked my, uh, my entire business. And so one of the things you do have to be willing to do is what you did. You're like, well, I totally blew it on my time estimate. It's going to be five years, not eight months. And you can say, I've decided in the eight months I did do it, it really isn't that fun. So I'm going to go back to do what I used to do because that yeah. was better. Yeah. And that's totally cool. But if yeah. it's worth it, then you go, it's not that you failed. It's that you discovered how to make it work. And that's anything yeah. but a failure. Or, you know, there were other things, right? Like I discovered that I was missing a skill and <laughs> yeah. by, by recapitalizing, by doing another job, I'd be able to have time and resources to pick that skill up. Right. Absolutely. And do it better the next time. Yeah. Yeah. And any business person will tell you it's, you don't get to a point where, oh, I get it. And now I'm done with my skill set and I can just rake in money. No, it's a, it's a constant learning yeah. curve. And uh, part of the trick of staying in business is you don't even have to be able to foresee where trends are going. It is enough to keep up with where they are. And that's, and that itself is quite the challenge. Is, is that more of a new pattern for you keeping up? Are you making an effort? Is there yeah. something that changed from when you led up yeah. to that two years ago point? Yeah, it, it definitely. I mean, I um, part of why I started working out was every single day I would be in some kind of online learning program. That is, you know, I'd be watching YouTube videos about uh, Photoshop techniques because I do my own covers or mm -hmm. I would be... Um, listening to online courses about marketing data and, you know, how Amazon ads work and, and what the next big thing is right now. I'm actually, I'm researching a thing. Um, it's not a huge project, but I'm looking at a, 
a thing called Minicam because I'm doing more and more video interviews because mm -hmm. you know that's where focus is shifting mm -hmm. and i want to be able to present myself more professionally so rather than just look like the raggedy guy who barely figured out how to make his webcam work i can <laughs> look like i know what i'm doing you know people want to feel like oh i'm in the hands of a professional yeah <laughs> and so it's constantly researching constantly learning and and it has actually turned to really a joy because it does let me uh, off the hook for creating a story and I can learn something. I like the way you say that and that you can let yourself off the hook so you can learn something. Yeah. Um, because if I imagine if you stick with the label, I am an author and you're not writing like that could feel like failing. Yeah. And, and we already deal with imposter syndrome as it is. I mean, you could put five of the like top selling authors in the United States on a panel and they all five will look at the person next to him and go, oh my gosh, I'm the only unqualified person here, you know? Yeah. We all struggle with that already. So why not just, once you can admit you don't know a lot of things, instead of feeling like a failure, you, you go, oh, but look, I can also learn them. I mean, a yeah. hundred years ago, if you didn't know how to be, you know, how to do typesetting, your option was to become an apprentice and be a typesetter. And that mm -hmm. was it. Mm -hmm. And now you go, I don't know how to do layout for my book. And you type book layout, you know, uh, Kindle and a thousand YouTube videos come up. Yeah. And honestly, the first couple you pick are going to be useless because you didn't know enough to pick a good one, yep. but they inform you the right thing to Google next time. And all of a sudden you're in this wonderful state where you get to come out of it at the end of the day, um, a more impressive human being, you know, somebody who is, who has a greater skill set. I really, I'm going to, I'm going to be honest. My wife is so much better than I deserve. I have been married to her for almost 20 years. I am just head over heels over her still. Mm. Um, she gets my mental, emotional and physical engines revving. Mm. And I love that she can talk to her friends and I hear occasionally like Michael Brent just knows how to do so many things. <laughs> and, and I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, it's like, Oh, she noticed me, you know, and it's a yeah. wonderful feeling um, to be able to take that to her. But even without her at the end of the day, I go, wow, I really learned how to do layer masking a different way on Photoshop. Yeah. Oh gee, I really learned how to do proper keyword input for an Amazon ad or how to, you know, drill down to audience demographics on Facebook and things like that. And it, it's really empowering. As soon as you admit you are going to be professionally, perpetually ignorant, it doesn't turn you useless. You become the world's best kindergartner. You know, like my mm. kids going, he, my, my son's favorite word is also. And he will start sentences like that after me not having seen him for 12 hours, you know, <laughs> he'll go also dad. And it's his way of saying, and now we're getting into my questions and he's learning so much. And he's so excited every time we answer him and you get to feel like that. You get to be an author and I am professionally ignorant. And so if I feel like Googling, a kind of street light and how they make it because it's part of my story. How cool is that? Yeah. Yeah. Now in the context of writing, it's super exciting how much information we have at our fingertips when it, when it comes to taking on new skills, right? I, there's a process in a time where 
you suck at it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I imagine that can be a challenge. Yeah, but you know, it gets especially it really if you're does, especially if you're looking for feedback. I guess is the point. Yeah, and and that's always hard because feedback. Um, you know, like writers critique groups, very often they're not critique groups, they're self-congratulation groups. You know, everybody mm -hmm. gets in a circle and pats the back of the person in front of them. Mm -hmm. and, and there's something to be said for validation and I'm not knocking those groups. I'm not making fun or saying they have no place. I just want to be really clear. Mm -hmm. um, but finding someone who A, has a level of skill sufficient to competently inform your work and B, who loves you enough to be kind in their ruthlessness. Mm. Um, those are very difficult things to find. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why, again, Facebook and, and Twitter and things like that, Facebook particularly, I think they're good for that because you can find communities um, that specialize in that. And I, and I have to be honest, I have yet to find a, an author's critiquing authors community that really services people for, you know, an improvement of skills. But if I'm learning PR, mm -hmm. I will go on a, a Facebook group that's devoted to professional public relations, you know, people who are not learning the skill, but who are sharing resources. And I will just sit in the back. And if they mention something in an area I'm interested in, I will gobble that up and I'll look at the resource mm -hmm. and I'll read the article. And so once you're, you kind of allow yourself to have that ignorance, you're like, instead of going, I'm so dumb, you get to say, yippee, a new thing to learn. And then you can find out enough about the basics all by yourself, almost anything you can at least get an understanding all by yourself of the questions you need to ask to get better. Mm. And that will allow you either, either to pinpoint your research materials that you need or to find the people who do know that stuff. Yeah. And I'll tell you too, if you're an author, you have this incredible power. You can walk up to somebody who is a stranger and say, I did this at, at the park the other day. My daughter is interested in getting a drone. And there was these, I was working at the park and there was these two guys being socially distant, but they had drones and they were whipping them around. So I walked up and I said, excuse me, I'm so sorry to bother you. Um, I noticed you had drones. Uh, could I ask you a question? And they kind of went, yeah. And I said, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be creepy. I don't know if you saw me. I'm over there. I'm an author and I write and I'm... And, I didn't even finish the sentence. As soon as I said, I'm an author, they were like, oh, cool, you know, mm -hmm. and people expect you to ask those questions as an author and they are excited to show off their skill set. And, and that's just, that's like a superpower. You can just bop online, go into a PR group and say, I'm an author and authors traditionally are terrible at this. Mm -hmm. You guys clearly are amazing. What's mm -hmm. a good resource? And, mm. and they'll be like, let me help the poor dumb author. And they... <laughs> They find this tremendous gratification. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. So a couple of questions. One, are you still there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm still here. I'm still here. <laughs> okay. Cause yeah, I'm paranoid. It's, it's the, it's the witching hour for yeah. Zoom, Zoom and the internet. I'm like, why hasn't it frozen yet? What do you think Oh, give it on? time. Give it time. I guess more people are going back to work is what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like you're a lifelong learner 
and you've maybe figured that out about yourself. Um, yeah. And what are you working on right now? Uh, right now, I am finishing up a novel called The Forest um, about a couple of young friends who go into a forest looking for their, their third friend who's been kidnapped, they think, and um, come out without the person. And then 20 years later, they go back to the forest to kind of conquer the fear that's that has uh, followed them throughout their lives since they failed to save their friend. And, and as soon as they walk into the forest, weird things start happening again. And, and uh, hopefully it's fun and spooky and thought provoking. I always like to, um, I don't believe authors should craft a story to spackle around the bricks of their theme. That is, uh, you see this a lot with writers as they progress. They're like, now I have something important to say. Mm what is the story that I can kind of putty around the edges of my important thing? Mm -hmm. And it should be the other way around. Uh, you should have a story as your basic building material. And then you pepper in the interesting philosophy or the, the uh, observations about life and humanity that hopefully we can provide as authors since we're, we're supposed to be asking those questions. Mm -hmm. um, and so hopefully this book has a bit of that, has a little bit of, you know, philosophical questions that will leave the reader feeling enlightened or at least enthusiastic to pursue some things. And, and most of all, I hope it's entertaining and just gives people some fun. Mm. That's great. And, and in terms of, continuous learning actually maybe i should ask it this way so um something we've already covered then so you do your own covers how long have you been doing your own covers <laughs> uh i've been doing them since i started self-publishing i laugh because there's, there's really two questions how long have <laughs> i been doing them and how long have i been doing them well um well, I want, more answers. more i wanted to yeah well more i wanted to know well I assume that when you did them to start, they sucked and people told you you should like buy covers from professionals. Well, no, actually they didn't because when I started, I got, I got in, I wasn't like one of the very first people doing Kindle, mm. but I was doing it seven years ago and it was still fairly new and you could slap a picture and then use word for your typeface, you know, to say mm -hmm. the name of your, you know, strangers by Michael Brent Collings and people had no real alternatives and this was when indie publishing was kind of you know everybody thought it was pretty crappy and so they were really anybody doing it was looking at the words to a greater extent mm. um, they were already kind of invested in it and that was one of the things that i failed at and a couple of years ago two of my good friends um joanna penn who runs the creative pen which is a fantastic Mm -hmm. uh, writing podcast and Andrea Pearson, who's part of six figure authors, which is another great one. Yep. Uh, both of them, I'd kind of announced like, I'm, I'm not doing this well, my family's suffering. So I'm stepping back and I'm going to retire. And both of them within a couple of minutes had texted and said, first of all, not allowed. Second of all, your covers suck, you know, and they <laughs> said it a little nicer. Yeah. Um, but that was a big, huge point that they said it needed work. And I literally spent two months just eight hours a day learning Photoshop and learning, uh, you know, the expectations of cover design and things yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, so in the last two years, that's been a lot of fun is revamping almost all of my covers and creating the new ones. So, uh, you know, I've been doing them since the beginning. I did them. Okay. Starting about 
five years ago, but they still weren't great and they need to be great as an indie. You know, if the choice is Michael Brink Collings or Stephen King, my book has to look better because he's a household name. And why are they going to take a chance? Well, they have to look at it and go, well, obviously this guy has some base competence at the creation of a book. And that instills a subconscious uh, confidence in the buyer to say, all right, I'll turn over my money and turn over more importantly, my time. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'll, I'll confess, I got into designing my own covers because, well, A, undercapitalized and, <laughs> and, and B, I love learning and, you know, yeah. hacking around with a new skill is fun. Yeah. The reason it stayed addictive for me um, initially was because I like data and Mm-hmm. like I don't have to buy a cover and have it not work mm-hmm. right I can keep making covers until the data moves yeah right and that's addictive but it wasn't until this year that I actually took the classes to learn how to actually competently use <laughs> yeah right like the photoshop tools and all the things like oh well that was saving a lot of time oh that would yeah. solve this problem better yeah. And, and there's, things, and there's right? things that you won't be able to just like ask the right question. So one of the things that I was fascinated by and the data has borne it out for me is like, if you're running Facebook ads yeah. for your book, you don't put the book cover. Yeah. You put a totally different picture. And in fact, some of my pictures that I have running for my ads have nothing to do with the story other mm. than they provide a mood and they let the you know people who might click in on the feel of the book and the genre. And those covers did so much better than when I put the, or those ads did so much better than when I put the cover. And I learned that taking a class. And it's not something I ever would have thought of on my own. Like, what if I don't mm. put the cover on my ad for this book? Um, it's so counterintuitive. And, and so, yeah, it's wonderful to take those classes and because you know your business the best, you know, people say, well, I know it better than anybody. So how are they going to teach me? Well, great. Take everything that you know the best and listen to everything the expert says and apply everything that applies, you know, and there will be things that the expert says, always do this. And you can legitimately say, actually, in my business model, if I have already found that if you do that, it leads to less of a return. Mm-hmm but at least you have a new wealth of information to draw upon. So I, even though I, I do pretty good covers, I think, I mean, people compliment them constantly um, at comic cons. They're like, Oh, you're indie. I didn't, I wouldn't have thought, you know, mm. and I'm very proud of that. And I still am constantly looking for, you know, I'll, I'll just Google how to do a good horror cover with Photoshop, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I've already seen most of the videos at that point, but some new person pops on and I'll watch an hour and get 80 seconds of good info yeah, off of it yeah, that I didn't yeah. know. And I'm thrilled. Yeah. It's really addictive to watch. Those oh, totally. Videos. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Um, so you mentioned screenwriting and I was going to mm-hmm. ask about that cause I wasn't clear if like you had had stories adapted to the screen or if you were screenwriting with intention at some point. Um, Yeah. Um, Well, I've had two movies made and I tell people, uh, you know, that they were amazing scripts that through the magic of Hollywood were adapted to movies. I won't say good movie. I won't say bad movie um, because the movie is a very different thing than the Mm -hmm. script. But yeah, I, I, a member of the writer's guild, which is the, kind of the Hollywood Screenwriters Guild. And um, 
you have to have sold several screenplays and done certain high level professional things. So I, I directly wrote two screenplays. I, most of my books, while I am writing the book, I am also writing the screenplay. Mm -hmm. And the answer, the reason I do that is it's a monetization thing. I mean, I can do it without adding too much time to the process and the potential for a sale is, is there in much greater amount. If I can say I've already got a screenplay. Yeah. Now Um, I, uh I, I kind of want to stop you there because I'd love to dig into that process a little bit. Like how does that transfer? Like, what do you specifically from like maybe a craft or mindset perspective transferring from the story you're writing to the, to the script and like what changes, like how does it transform? Yeah. And and that's what I tell people. A lot of authors who are very good authors are very bad screenwriters. And there are a lot of screenwriters who are not great authors Hmm. uh, of novels and books and things. Um, Because what I tell people, it's sort of like speaking uh, Spanish and going to Portuguese. I I used to live in, in a country called Paraguay. It's right in the middle of South America and it's on the border of Brazil and I spoke Spanish and then I lived next to Brazil and I thought I'd had a stroke because this woman started <laughs> talking to me and she sounded like she was talking drunk Spanish, mm-hmm. but I, and I didn't understand it, you know, and, and anybody who knows the two languages, they're actually very closely related, but just because you speak one doesn't mean you're going to be able to understand, let alone speak the other. Mm-hmm. They are two different languages. A lot of the skill sets do transfer just like Spanish to Portuguese, but they are different. So um, in a screenplay, in a book, you have, let's say an 80,000 word book. If you bobble a word or a sentence, it is not going to make your reader close the book Hmm. because everybody figures in a hundred thousand words, there's going to be a bobble. A screenplay, if you look at screenplays, they are 90% white space that's mm-hmm. a little high but like 70 percent of the page is white right the words are so sparse you have to be so careful and if you write a poorly crafted sentence even in the especially in the first page or two um you're not going to make the sale because yeah. every word matters and one thing that's tremendously hard for a lot of authors is um there's three basic types of telling a story and that is um, the novel, the movie, and the stage play, the theater. And each one of those can tell the same story, but tells it with a much different emphasis. So novels are all about an inner struggle. They're about my response as the character to Mm. what's happening. And that's reflected in the format, which is large paragraphs, most of which is not dialogue. It's thinking it's the point of view. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you go to, Um, stage plays, the point of that is person interaction with person. And again, it's reflected in the format in which the dialogue is the biggest thing. It's, it goes from margin to margin. And that's what the purpose of that is, is to talk things out. You go to the movie and it's person versus the outside world. And so the biggest blocks are action. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's very hard to imagine Twister the novel, you know, or, you know, Avengers Endgame, 
the novel because all of the great things that we enjoy about Avengers, um, you know, the humor, the dialogue might come across, but if you think of the sight gags and just think of explaining the end battles yeah. in under 300 pages all by itself. And so you've got, you know, half an hour of a movie versus 300 pages, it becomes horribly boring. And so one of the big struggles, if you're going to be translating back and forth is to remember what the real issue is at the core. And so mm -hmm. when I'm writing a horror novel, it will be about events. Obviously horror novels have a lot of plot to them typically. Yeah. But within that event, it's going to be very much about the person's perceptions of it. In fact, I do a lot of third person limited. I love the unreliable narrator. Yeah. 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 And so it's, uh, you know, the current book it's, there's a, a chapter with Patricia's point of view, and there's a chapter with Alex's point of view, chapter with Patricia's point of view, and they are both observing similar actions and coming to different conclusions. Mm. And mm. you do that very well in a book. And that allows the reader to stay a little bit ahead of the characters in a lot of ways, because mm -hmm. you're seeing both Alex's and Trisha's um, responses to these stimuli and you as the reader can then start putting things together ahead of time, which is fun. Mm -hmm. um, in a movie, it's not going to be about Trisha's and Alex's internal processes and the emotional scarring and damage. It's going to be about the way they choose to fight back against the ghost mm -hmm. the place they run to you know if we're talking about horror movies we always make fun why would the girl run up the stairs why would the girl run to the cemetery you're, you're right, right. you never hear someone go what were her thought processes and what emotional scarring led her to choose a path that might end in a dark place you know nobody gets into that because it's a movie yeah Although maybe maybe it'd be fun to do a mystery science theater interpretation that way. Oh, oh, absolutely. But e even those, those are like mostly, and I love MST3K, um, those are mostly zingers on dialogue where they make fun of it or very often visual things. You know, how many times have you seen one of them pick someone's nose? Yeah, yeah. Or one of my favorite moments was they were doing a 50s movie and they had like the really pointed bras and the robot kind of sat up and bounced back and forth between the ends <laughs> inside the girl's cleavage and went bong, bong, you know. And so even that, they're much more visually oriented because it's about active participation externally. Right. And so if you're taking literary fiction and it's a 600-page book about a woman watching a dewdrop form, drinking chamomile tea and thinking about maybe committing adultery someday. Mm. That is a terrible movie to film <laughs> that way. It's been filmed. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, it's like that you go to see that with subtitles so that you can <laughs> brag to your friends about it and sound smart. You don't actually go for fun. <laughs> Very few people do. Um, and I do go to those and, and I'm kind of saying it tongue in cheek. There's a lot of artistry and fun to be had, but, but yeah. if you're really going to make that movie, that is going to be, you're going to show the first yeah. time she ran into Jacob, the grocer, and you're going to show how she blushed and tittered, even though her husband was standing right next to her. And, and, and so you, you have to alter the story. Um, one of the books that I use as a really good example is World War Z. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> which the movie came out and there was this huge uproar, like it's nothing like the book. It's terrible. The book was so much better. And I kind of wanted to scream at those people because I was like, if you filmed this book, it would not be a movie. It would be a hundred million dollars per episode. Ken Burns documentary. <laughs> And the economics don't work. So, of course, they changed things. Yeah. But what they did was they looked at the book and they said, here are some cool story snippets. And most of all, you remember that moment where all the zombies pile up against the Jerusalem wall? Mm -hmm. That would look bitchin' mm -hmm. at 100 feet long with Brad Pitt <laughs> looking like a surfer trying right. to figure it out, you know? Right. And so that's really what you have to do is you have to, if you're taking a book and turning it into a movie, you have to take these in intellectual internal moments and find a way to turn them into something we see. So while she's staring at a dewdrop for the entire literary fiction novel, you are going to have the key moment happen in a storm that symbolizes her internal conflict, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you have to do a lot of that. Yeah. So would this work better? Like, does this, do you feel this out as you go or do you like have this pre-planning process where you're like, okay, I understand the internal goal, the professional goal and the spiritual goal of the character. And I'm going to have these different focus points for each as I go. It, it kind of depends on the story. You know, people are tend to be pantsers, you know, people who write by the scene of their pants or yeah. outliners and, um, I have done both and I have yet to settle on a method. I mean, if I'm writing a mystery or my current uh, book is very convoluted. And so I literally took up, I moved every piece of furniture out of our living room mm. and spread note cards across the entirety of the floor. Wow. Um, you know, cause I had yeah. to have all these plot points that would mesh in certain ways. Yeah. Um, I remember on the, on the flip side of that, I was on a panel with Jonathan Mayberry, who, who's a tremendously successful author, and he wrote uh, V Wars, um, which they turned into a Netflix show, and he was a producer on it. And he was, we were on this panel talking about zombies, and he mentioned that he had read my zombie series, which is called The Colony Saga. And he gave me one of the best compliments. He said, in book five, I finally realized what was going on, and I threw it across the room and yelled, you mother... <laughs> in a good way, you know, uh -huh. and, and I didn't tell him, I kind of wanted to turn to him and go book five. That's exactly when I figured out what was going on. Uh -huh. you know? <laughs> because I just been kind of seeing where it, it took me. And, and so it's a green room conversation. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that, but it was tremendously fun. And, and that's hard to do, especially with a multi-volume because the colony saga is like seven books. And, and I knew I was writing it as I went and it was tremendously scary because there were no do-overs. I couldn't go back to, you know, to, cause you were releasing them as you went. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was. Um, and it was actually serialized like they're short books. It would be a 2000 page novel. Mm -hmm. And so I serialized it into seven chunks and I released it as I went. And I had no idea how I was going to wrap it up. 
until book five. And luckily, I'd been doing it long enough at that point. You kind of do get a sense for this, just like with any other profession. Mm -hmm. You know, your first year out of um, business school, you don't know automatically how to do, how to handle your year-end financial audits. Right. Ten years into it, you're like, yeah, I can do that in my sleep. Yeah, you know? I'm worried. <laughs> yeah. So again, I'm, I'm not saying like I'm the greatest in the world, but after a while, you get some competence and I know I can figure out a story. Hmm. Well, sounds like we could talk forever. You have the easy nature about you. Oh. Um, so I appreciate your time. I guess final question is for people who'd like to know more about you, um, how can they find you? Uh, the easiest ways I have uh, my official website is writteninsomnia.com. Mm -hmm. Written insomnia, stories that will keep you up all night. Uh, an easier way, though, is just to Google my first name. My first name is actually Michael Brent, <laughs> and it's what I go by. And, and it's not because I have a gold stick up my butt. It just makes it easier for people to find me. Uh -huh. So Google Michael Brent. I'm the only one in the whole world, and you will find my Amazon page, my Facebook page, and all that good stuff. Cool. Well, Michael Brent Collings, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you inviting me, and, and it has been awesome chatting with you. Great. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover The Fearless Storyteller podcast. 